He played carol gun. His rating was higher. But from move seventeen, the king's side was mine. Took my chances fast. My rook was a knife, and my almighty queen, a beast on each six. Hello, everyone, and welcome to Ladies' Night, the official podcast of U.S. Chess Women. I'm your host Jennifer Shahadi, and you are listening to the artist Huga of HugaMusica.com, and that is a song that certainly captured my heart. Oh, Capablanca! His bishop was small. Thanks to everyone who supports the podcast through shares and reviews and Apple Live. If you want to get more involved in all we do at US Chess to empower girls and women through chess, please consider a tax-deductible donation of any size to our US Chess Women program and reach out to me with any questions. He has more experience, but I won't lose again. Hello, everyone, and welcome back to Ladies' Night. Today, I have with us executive producer of The Queen's Gambit, William Horberg. He also produced the 1993 hit movie Searching for Bobby Fischer, as well as many other movies you have likely enjoyed, including The Kite Runner, Lars and the Real Girl, Sliding Doors, Talented Mr. Ripley, and the list goes on. But right now, it's all about The Queen's Gambit and the incredible effect it's having on the world of chess. And of course, here... I'm particularly excited about the girls and women who are getting to the game because of it. First of all, um, big congrats on the amazing success of the series so far. Number one on Netflix in countries all over the world. How does it feel? It's fantastic. You know, it's uh, a project that's near and dear to my heart, uh, a book that I read decades ago and and really fell hard in love with. And it's been a long journey uh, to get this made but it seems to really just have come at the right time. And obviously it's touched a a deep nerve out there. It was the show people wanted without even knowing that they wanted it. I mean, it's so fun to see people going, I don't play chess and I would never be interested. And then I turned on Queen's Gambit and I just ordered a board uh, off of Amazon. So um, it's thrilling. Yeah, it really is like a dream come true for those of us who've been promoting chess for so many years and trying to get people to see this glamorous side of it. And, you know, bang, there it is on screen. So you said in Chess Life and in other interviews that you were attracted to this project via the book and you've done a lot of other successful adaptations. So what was it about the book that you could tell would work really well on screen? Well, Tevis has a gift. Um, He's just an incredible, uh, unique craftsman as a writer. And there's something about that book from the first page where you have to keep turning the pages and you're walking in this girl's shoes and you just so deeply identify with her and care about her and yet want her to be okay. And she's going through this epic hero's journey. And, you know, it's very authentic. He himself, as I've come to learn, was somebody who had been orphaned at an early age and you know, lived in a home, maybe something like Spess, uh, had been introduced to prescription medications by the state. Uh, He was a bit of an amateur chess uh, passionate player himself. So, you know, when somebody brings that level of truth 
uh, into any work usually communicates and it just found its way into my heart. I, I felt like Beth was somebody that the world had to experience. Yes, absolutely. And we actually just read this book, The Queen's Gambit, for a new book club, the Mad Woman's Book Club that we're doing at U.S. Chess Women, where we kind of combine analysis of a book and a little chess lesson. And so I, I re read it recently. I read it when I was a little kid also, um, but I didn't really remember much. But when I, I reread it, I was I was kind of startled by how many of the beautiful lines in the series, all pawns and no hope to describe the Carol Khan, or what surprised me was how badly they all played. Like these lines were actually just lifted from the book. Is that typical that so much dialogue actually ends up on screen? Well, it's a range. I've done a lot of different adaptations, but you know, you want to honor the book and you want to honor the spirit of the book and Anthony Mangello is one of the, you know, wonderful uh, writer-directors I had a chance to work with. And he always had a great thing that stayed with me. You know, he said that when he read a book, he wanted to imagine that all the other copies of it had been destroyed and that he was in sole possession of the book. And so, therefore, it was his responsibility to communicate the book to the rest of the world that didn't have access to it. And so, in his adaptations, he was always trying to be that kind of messenger uh, of the essence of the book. And, you know, sometimes that means you've got to find a way to translate a book into a cinematic language and nonverbal experience. Sometimes it is really being, you know, incredibly faithful to the book. You know, this was a book that really lent itself to this format, this kind of uh, full-throated, in-depth exploration of character that a limited series allows you to do. And, you know, some of it is Scott and his personality and his take and his ability to find humor in dark places and to put a lump in your throat when you don't expect it. But there was so much of that on the page, you know, and, and Scott and I shared that, you know, respect and, and kind of reverence for the book. And so I think that came into his adaptation. Was there anything that you felt strongly about changing in the book? Well, we amplified certain things. You know, the the backstory of Elizabeth before the accident is very gently implied in the book, but it was never dramatized or explored. And we felt that that was useful to the show to kind of show the youngest version of Beth and to actually see her actual mother uh, on screen and to understand a bit of what that you know, dynamic was like and, you know, some of her fears about, you know, madness and genius and uh, where that came from. So that was one thing that he, you know, created for the show that certainly felt true to the book, but, you know, that, that isn't the same kind of running thread uh, through the novel. And then, you know, it was his choice to, let's say, enhance the ending by bringing Towns to Russia and having him be the character that, you know, is from her past that kind of stands in for all these various relationships that she's had along the way, uh, but he's actually physically there and, you know, we wanted to justify that, you know, by having him as a reporter and, you know, believe that he could have been in Moscow at that time. Other than that, it was just a choice of, you know, as always, what to leave in, what to leave out, where to kind of uh, focus and where to, you know, maybe look at something from a 
you know, more of a 30,000 foot view. Obviously, that was a big, big consideration in how to film uh, these chess games. I mean, how to write them, how to stage them, how to shoot them, how to edit them. I would say fear is a great motivator, Jennifer. And, you know, we were terrified. Uh, There's just so much chess in the book. We were intimidated by, you know, how do we make this something that is both authentic and honors the game and honors people like you who, you know, are going to scrutinize the way we present the game, but also is uh, accessible to people who don't know the game and, uh, you know, might not otherwise choose to go that into the weeds, let's say. So that, I think, was Scott's real triumph uh, here. You know, clearly uh, this just works for everybody and for chess aficionados and for people who just want to connect with human drama. Really interesting. You know, Gary Kasparov, we were lucky enough to have him as a guest in a girls club. So he was inspiring the young ladies who are trying to become, you know, chess champions like Beth Harmon and explaining how he devised some of these games that showed up later in the series um, and how true he was to the book where he would like look for the descriptions by Walter Tevis and, you know, where a pawn was pushed and try to come up with a game that matched that. Um, it was it was quite extraordinary, all the, the work he put into that. And I thought that it really lifted the, the book to kind of like a new height because, you know, you, you can't really read the Walter Tevis book and imagine that in the same way. Well, one of the beautiful things, Jennifer, was a kind of kismet moment, let's say. You know, I knew Bruce Pandolfini from Searching for Bobby Fischer. He's the character in the, the story that is played by Ben Kingsley. And so when I started Queen's Gambit, he was the first person that I introduced to Scott. He came to lunch in New York and you know, I said Bruce would be just a wonderful partner for us in all things chess around this production. He has a real gift of how to make actors comfortable and explain the game to them and, you know, make it uh, where it looks real on screen. And then I didn't know this about Bruce, but at the lunch, he told us that he'd actually been hired by the publisher to um, work with Walter Tevis. So Pandolfini was Tevis's chess consultant during the you know final rewriting of the book and had spent quite a bit of time with him, you know, going through the moves and trying to make things uh, credible on the page. In fact, Pandolfini told us that uh, it was his suggestion to Tevis to title the book The Queen's Gambit. So that was an incredible moment when Scott and I realized we're sitting down here with the guy who actually was part of that uh, moment of creation. And of course, it was through Bruce that we were introduced to Gary and you know met with Gary in New York. And he was generous enough to read our scripts and advise us on them. And what was fantastic for us and unexpected, you know, not only did we get his expertise on the game and the moves and, you know, kind of technical side of things, but his own personal biography happened to kind of beautifully mirror uh, Beth's Harmon. They were approximately the same age and the same generation. So Gary was really able to talk to us about what it was like growing up as a child prodigy, the family dynamic, the 
peer dynamic at school, you know, uh, suddenly being outside it, becoming an outsider in your own world where you have a special gift, the whole Soviet chess culture of that era. So that was like a, an extra, you know, kind of frosting on the cake, a personal side of the story. We were able to suddenly understand human dimensions of what it would be like for, for a Beth Harmon at that time and place. So I saw you were on set in Berlin. Were you in set for the whole filming? Yeah. And what was like the most memorable scene from the production side, you know, when you were there on set? Well, there are so many. I never thought we could pull off Mexico City in Berlin. It just seemed completely impossible to me. So the whole sequence in Mexico, but especially the tournament, I just think is such a beautiful. And the fact that our production designer and the art department were able to turn that into the Aztec Hotel. And then the game that she plays with that young boy. Uh-huh. I just love that. I love his character. I, I love the moment where he doesn't understand what she's saying. You know, he says he's going to win the world championship by 15. And she says, well, what are you going to do after that? <laughs> and he's like, huh? So that was really a highlight for me. The Russian tournament finale, you know, was a big, big production. Megillah, hundreds of extras, interiors, outterior, the staging of that and pulling that off. And obviously, you know, situating it within Russia with the visual effects elements that we, you know, brought to bear. So, yeah, Berlin was just fantastic. Not an obvious destination for this in any way, because there's not a single moment of the story that takes place there. But we realized that we had to be in Europe for Paris and Moscow, and that we also, as long as we were bringing a whole unit and actors and everybody over there, we should look to find as many things as we could. And Berlin, you know, just happened to be rebuilt after the war. And so a lot of the architecture there is Cold War, 50s, 60s. It just lent itself quite beautifully to many of these various interior locations we needed, you know, hotel ballrooms, hotel rooms, high school gyms. And we walked into this big convention hall and we just looked at each other and go, this is a Las Vegas casino. (laughs) How, How is this possible? You know, we're here in East Berlin and it looks exactly like Bobby Darren should be up on stage singing or something. So we had a, you know, really top team uh, from the production designer, Uli Hanisch, who was one of the best in Europe. His whole department, set decorators, art directors, you know, they were able to build this world and really cared deeply about getting the chess right. We had a big chess summit. It was almost three days of the whole team coming together and the chess consultant and we went through every game at every tournament and talked about the boards and the pieces and the clocks and the lighting and the scoreboards and the tournament director and how would it all work and the score sheets and you know we all got a huge uh, tutorial who was hosting the tutorial is bruce and others as well yeah bruce ended up meeting and kind of partnering with these two wonderful german man, Ipe, I-E-P-E, and John Paul, and they were masters in Germany. And because Bruce couldn't be there every single day of the shoot, uh, but we wanted somebody on set who would be able to catch, 
any mistakes. In the end, we had a team of people. Gary kind of remotely being the, you know, uh, 800 pound gorilla. And then Bruce was there, let's say for all the key, you know, big tournaments, the Moscow tournament open in Kentucky. And of course, Bruce is in it, you know, he plays the tournament director at the, um, her first, you know, the Henry Clay high school. And she goes, back there and he chases her out for trying to smoke the cigarette that's Bruce Pandolfini that was a great cameo you know when you talked about the scene with the boy and how Beth talked about how what are you going to do after it's funny because it actually kind of connects to one of my favorite Gary Kasparov stories that after he won the world championship um Tigran Petrosian's um wife Rona said I feel sorry for you Gary why? Why would you feel sorry for me? I'm the youngest world champion in history. And um, she said, because the happiest day of your life is over. Yeah. So, yeah, just one of my, my favorite chess quotes. And um, yeah, I never, I, ne- I didn't connect that. But when you were talking about it, I, I thought maybe Gary had some role in that. It would be amazing to be a fly on the wall for some of those scenes. Can you tell me what the actors had the most difficulty with? So there was this chess summit. There were chess consultants on set. Was there anything that the actors kind of like needed a little extra time to get? Well, the actors weren't at the chess summit. You know, that was really the whole production team side of things. So the actors, as we cast them, you know, the ones who had on-screen chess action, uh, they started working with Bruce remotely before they ever even, you know, showed up to come, you know, be in the show. And Anya just had an incredible gift. I, I got to say, I'm, I'm pretty blown away. To me, the equivalent would be an actor being cast in a role to play a violin concerto uh, who doesn't play the violin. For me, that speed chess game she plays, I, I just still really can't get over how she could have memorized that many moves and the ability to do it in that uh, speed. That's just like somebody who has a gift, you know, a kind of musical ear or perfect pitch or something. You know, I, I just felt she had such a natural ability. I guess she said it was from her background in dancing mm-hmm. and that she kind of related it to choreography memorizing a lot of a multi-step sequence, you know, seemed to be something that came easier to her. You know, some of those actors were, you know, amateur players and did have a little more fluency. Bruce, his whole theory was it doesn't really help that much to like have drilled down two days ago. What you really need is almost in real time, like right before the camera rolls, to have somebody very prepped and refreshed on what they were going to need to do. It was kind of how it went. You know, there was a lot of last minute coaching and then stepping into the chair and roll. And, you know, we had a ticking clock in terms of having to get all this shot. We obviously had, you know, multiple cameras. The thing I would say, Jennifer, is that Scott so carefully designed each game to have a story reason, you know, a kind of raison d'etre in terms of Beth's emotional reason for being there, her relationship with her opponent, where it came in her overall arc of, of growing up. And so because he was so dialed in in terms of the storytelling, it was a great roadmap, let's say, 
as to, you know, these some games, we don't care about the moves. Actually, we're just going to stay on the face for the whole game and the exchange of looks. Some games, we don't care about certain parts of them, but we deeply care about other parts of them. So we have to make sure that Gary and Bruce have designed those moves that can tell the story. Because obviously, we were never going to present a whole chess game in real time. You know, there was no space to do that. So we had to kind of marry our storytelling requirements with the games that would fulfill those requirements. And that was something that a lot, a lot of time was spent working out and really paid off. And then every game has so much variety. I love the one where she just walks over to the table and she introduces herself as Beth Harmon. And the guy looks up and says, oh, shit. And then you cut. Like, you don't even need to see the game because you know that he's going to get trounced. So, yeah, I think that variety and specificity were our mantras. Yeah, and then in that first episode, there are some fool games, like the Scholars Made and like the 10 Move. There's a lot of like short ones there, which is so great for bringing people into the game that they can actually see those and analyze them later. It's almost like there's a secondary script in the series. Well, and then it even gets replayed on the ceiling, you know, in her imagination. So you get to see it in real time and then you get to almost rehearse it again. So, you know, we're trying to kind of almost school the audience as Beth herself is starting to wake up to the intricacies of the game. So you told me your favorite scenes from the production point of view. How about from just um, the viewing point of view? And how many times have you seen it? (laughs) Uh, Countless. There's so many, but I mean, it's an incredible set piece that is so entertaining and ironic and kind of perverse, but the whole intercutting of the kids screening the robe in the kind of chapel at the orphanage with young Beth breaking into the pill dispensary in order to steal the pills that have been denied to her. And, you know, the way that is shot and cut and the, you know, shocking revelation to the kids and the director of the home of Beth's larceny. I mean, that's just pure cinema to me. It's really delightful. I love so many moments between Alma, you know, the mother who adopts her, Marielle Heller, made such a contribution to the show that, you know, was between the lines and off the page, you know, the level of complexity that she brought to that woman's interior life and the contradictions with her her adopted daughter. That was really beautiful. I mean, just to watch it play out when we were filming it and then to cut it together. She was so fantastic. The whole cast really um, did such a great job. You uh, obviously got a chance to know the whole cast and now, you know, so many people around the world are falling in love with the different characters and the actors that played them. And of course, the the star, Anya. An- I hear people say Anya and Anya. Anya. Yeah, Anya. Okay. That's what I thought. Yeah. Okay. So Anya, she did such an amazing job. You mentioned the choreography and the blitz himmel that she gave. Um, Can you tell us something that might surprise us about Anya, as I'm sure everybody wants to know more about her right now? Well, one thing that surprised me was when she just busted out in fluent Spanish. Uh, Anya is actually half Argentinian. 
and she spent the first seven or eight years of her life uh, growing up in Argentina before she moved to the West. And so that was a lot of fun. Uh, my wife is actually Cuban. You know, when we were doing the Mexico City scene, of course, we had some Spanish extras there. Uh, she was chatting about. What else was I say? She's an avid reader. She was just devouring books between takes and sitting in her little chair on the edge of the set. I'm a big bibliophile, so we kind of had a lot of fun talking about writers that we love. She told me how she had just inhaled The Queen's Gambit when Scott sent it to her and like read the whole book in a couple hours before lunch meeting, you know, and then she said, I don't really run, but I ran to lunch to meet with Scott because I just so deeply connected to this character. So that's what you always dream about. In Chess Life, you talked about how despite the rave reviews for Searching for Bobby Fischer and its cult status... Um, the box office numbers were were not amazing. Whereas, of course, with this Netflix series, like everyone is seeing it. I, I don't know if any like statistics have been released except to say that it's number one in countries all over the world. But what do you think accounts for that difference? And how, how does it feel? Like in both cases, you got something that got rave reviews, but now rave reviews with the popularity on top. Yeah, it's funny when you introduced me, you said the hit movie Searching for Bobby Fischer. And I was to myself thinking, man, I wish it had been a big <laughs> hit movie. And it's a beloved movie and it has stood the test of time. And it's a movie that people discover, you know, in its life after. But it was a little bit of a feathered fish. It wasn't quite like a little Sundance indie darling. It was actually made by Paramount. And it wasn't a movie that, you know, they believed they could put out in 2000 screens and market to a, a mass audience. So in some ways, they didn't quite know what to do with it. You know, God bless them for making it. But it did seem like if it had been in other hands, it would have been marketed more as a you know, kind of smart film for adults. And then, you know, people would have discovered it and the incredible reviews it got, you know, could have driven it to find an audience through word of mouth. But I, I think it's very relevant to The Queen's Gambit because, you know, Alan Scott and I, uh, my, my partner, we struggled for decades to get The Queen's Gambit made as a film. Partly the lack of box office success of Searching for Bobby Fischer scared people away from the Queen's Gambit. You know, they just said, well, why is this going to work any better than that? And the Queen's Gambit story is so peripatetic and international that it doesn't lend itself to a kind of smaller budget, you know, indie production it, to do justice to it. You know, you really needed to show her moving from place to place and city to city. So there were always directors who wanted to make this and even actors that wanted to make it. But it just didn't work in the marketplace. It, it was too expensive for what it was, and we could never close the deal on any of the financing. Alan came closest in one iteration that I wasn't involved in uh, with Heath Ledger, where Heath was going to actually make it his first film as a director, and he was going to play a role in it, I presume Benny. And that actually got traction and got financial support and 
it only tragically, you know, fell over because of his untimely death. And then it kind of went back into the icebox. So my belief is that, you know, the marketplace had to evolve to a point where there was these streaming services and there was an allowance of format flexibility, let's say, and that you know, telling this story in six or seven parts wasn't possible, you know, at the time that we were trying to get it going earlier. And suddenly you could look around and see that the landscape had changed entirely. And that was Scott Frank's, you know, epiphany and kind of his innovation was that in the wake of Godless, it was time to revisit the Queen's Gambit and, you know, let's make it a limited series format. And uh, that unlocked the key, the pivot that finally allowed it to get made. And here it is, <laughs> this like cultural phenomenon. I literally got an email, maybe from Netflix, about chess set sales, you know, some metric on Amazon or something about like a 300% rise in chess set sales and Man, does that put a smile on my face. And in a lot of places, the number of women who are signing up for chess lessons and chess classes, which I've certainly seen, has doubled. You know, usually it's like 15% women. And now, like, the people who are coming from it, um, from Queen's Gambit, are even more women and girls, like maybe 60%. So, um, although, of course, boys and men are also very inspired by the series as well. That's fascinating what you said about how, like, the searching for Bobby Fischer, how it didn't do great in the box office, actually made this a longer road to creation. And I, I noticed also another movie, Queen of Catway, got fantastic reviews, but I don't think it even had a very long stay in the theater at all. So thank you so much to William Horvath for sharing with us some of his memories from The Queen's Gambit and celebrating with us a little bit all this incredible success. We can have a rap party, but... <laughs> eventually we're all going to get together and toast to the success of the Queen's Gambit. Thank you, Jennifer. Thanks for having me on the show. If you like what we're doing at US Chess to encourage women and girls to explore STEM fields, accentuate competence, and approach an even ratio with a focus on intersectionality, your donation to our US Chess Women programs is always appreciated and tax deductible. The US Chess Suite of Podcasts including Ladies' Night, are produced and edited by Jason Andre at Seven Season Films Photography and Media. Please visit sevenseasonfilms.com to find out how to start your own podcast. Don't forget to listen and subscribe to all U.S. Chess Podcasts from One Move at a Time, Cover Stories, and The Chess Underground. Till next time, may every night be Ladies' Night. Now according to Sockfish, Got it all wrong After slightly advantage I had nothing But my dear Capablanco You tell me We'll learn more from our defeats Who needs victories?